Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. Okay, can you please tell me your name? My name is uh, Lauren J. Sharkey. And where were you adopted from? I'm adopted from South Korea. Can you tell me a little bit about your adoption story? So I was adopted when I was three months old. Um, I was adopted from an agency called New Beginnings, which is based on Long Island, I believe. Or at least they have a satellite on Long Island. I don't know if they're actually like a big entity. But um, I was adopted by Irish Catholic parents and raised in a predominantly white neighborhood on Long Island. And for a long time, I really didn't think that I had any issues being adopted. But the more I look back on my relationships, specifically, the more I realized that adoption is sort of at the root of every decision I've made in my life. So it's a huge part of me. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. (laughs) Do you remember how old you were when your parents told you that you were adopted? So I was actually in kindergarten, and um, my mom and I were late to my first day of kindergarten. And when she brought me in the room, they had, like, all the tables set up with the little kids and everything, and I was told to go sit down. And one of the kids at the table was like, who is that woman? And I was like, that's my mom. And he goes, well, why don't you look like her? And I just remember that feeling of absolute peril and realizing for the first time, because when you're young, you don't realize that you're anything about your situation isn't normal. Mm -hmm. And I say that with air quotes because there is no real normal, but that seems to be the only word that fits. And, you know, it was the first time I sort of realized that my situation wasn't like everyone else's that I knew. And then um, they actually said, one of the other girls at the table actually said, you're adopted. Your real mom lives in China and didn't want you. And, you know, she, she made you come here and that's why you're here. Oh my gosh. And I was like, well, yeah, that, that tracks, you know, I'm five. <laughs> I was like, that makes sense to me. Oh my gosh. You know? And like kids know so much, you know, so I'm sure she like, didn't mean it the way it came out but like when you're a little kid you sort of have no yeah, filter yeah. <laughs> so when I got home I distinctly remember asking my mom like am I adopted and she didn't know what it meant I mean she did but like didn't really prepare for that conversation and I didn't really know what it meant mm-hmm. and then the way my parents sort of communicated what being adopted was to me was in a very formulaic manner and I think it's that conversation actually that informs so much of my identity mm-hmm. they explained it in a very mathematical sort of way like we wanted to have a child we couldn't have a, tw- a child therefore you are here okay. so and I think that's probably the easiest way to explain it to a five-year-old mm-hmm. you know because it doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation but then as I grew up, I really internalized that feeling of, okay, so I was the solution to this problem that they had. 
And if they hadn't had this problem, then I wouldn't be mm-hmm. here. So that really informed a lot of my self-worth and the way I valued myself and viewed myself. Were you able to talk about that with your parents growing up? So my parents always made sure that I knew that they were available for questions. Mm -hmm. If I had any, you know, they never were afraid to talk about it or not open to talking about it. But I feel as an adoptee and being sort of preached the gospel of adoption by other people around me, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly hearing how lucky I was or constantly hearing what a better life I had. And constantly being reminded about the sacrifice that my parents made to adopt me, it sort of fills you with this obligatory gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I felt really afraid, not because of anything they did, but afraid of offending these people that had done so much for me to ask about the people that are responsible for me being here. So I didn't really ask a lot of questions. And when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Did you find that you struggled with your identity as you got older and moved out and and just kind of came into your own, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, identity is always sort of like a moving target for me, Um, especially as a transracial adoptee. You know, my parents are white and I was raised in a predominantly white neighborhood. So I really struggle with what it means to be Korean because I don't have a connection to my homeland. I don't know anything about Korean culture or history. I don't speak the language. I probably couldn't name a good Korean restaurant in my area, not because I just moved here, but just because I've never sought out that cuisine. And, um, you know, I struggle with what it means to be an Asian American. Mm -hmm. You know, I struggle with what it means to be a woman of color who's benefited from white privilege her entire life. And I also struggle with what it means to be adopted because for the longest time, I really don't think I viewed myself as an adoptee. You know, my parents had sort of ingrained in me, like, you're our child and you're an extension of us and we love you. And I sort of embraced that and was like, yeah, I'm... I'm these white people's child, you know, I didn't think to question it, but the more I grew up and the more I saw of Asian people in the world and was sort of not embraced as a fellow Asian person, Mm -hmm. you know, I really struggled to find where I fit in the grand scheme of things racially and culturally. Mm -hmm. I remember just being rejected by other Latinos because I didn't speak Spanish. And I had a few people like just come up to me in random stores and talk to me in full blown 100 miles per hour Spanish. And uh, like, luckily my adoptive parents they spoke Italian and Portuguese and even some Spanish at, uh, in my house, but never to the point where I was fluent in it. So I would right. always answer in English and be like, oh, you need help? <laughs> like, oh, I'll try. And then they get mad at me for not answering in Spanish, for not speaking fluently. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm adopted. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and it, so, it's funny that you mentioned that. No, can, please keep no, going. No, 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 you go. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I found that when I encountered older Asian people, and I don't really know how to define older, I would just say probably north of 40, okay. um, you know, guesstimating. 
when I would meet any Asian person over 40, they would always want to know where I was from. Mm -hmm. And I would always say Long Island because that is where I'm from. And I know what people are asking when they're asking where you're from. Mm -hmm. And eventually after they wear me down, I'm always like, yes, I'm Korean. And then they'll say hello to me in Korean. And the only reason I know that's hello is because it's been said to me so many times. Yeah. Um, And I'll always reply, I don't speak Korean. I'm adopted. Mm -hmm. And the first question usually is, why haven't you learned? And I feel such guilt, you know, for not learning. Because especially now that there are so many resources, it's like, well, why haven't I learned? Mm -hmm. Why haven't I tried? And I don't have a good answer for myself. I really don't. And um, so I feel definitely alienated from the older Asian community, but also by the younger Asian community. When I first met my, um, when I met my first Asian friend in college, um, she asked me where I was from again. And I told her, I was like, I'm Korean. And she laughed at me and she was like, you're not really Korean. You're a Twinkie. And I was like, what? She goes yellow on the outside, white on the inside. You're not like really Korean. And then, you know, part of me really felt seen because no one had ever quite put it in a way that I understood. And I was like, oh my God, that actually makes sense because that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. But then you also feel this other layer of rejection. The Asian community doesn't, you know, subscribe to you Mm -hmm. in a way. I I feel like identity, especially for transracial adoptees, is is on a spectrum. Like, you know, we see the stereotypes of what an Asian person is supposed to be like, what a black person is supposed to be, what's a, a Latino person is supposed to be like. And then we all have internal biases. But then, uh, like, I feel like there's, like, so many nuances for an, an international adoptee to grow up and to come into our own that we kind of have to figure out, like, what is right for us and, like, a, a, like an awkward balance between our adoptive families and then our birth culture and it's just kind of like we're on a seesaw going back and forth and trying to find where we fit without being kicked out of each family type of at least that's for me because like I feel so awkward sometimes with my adoptive family and they have all their traditions and Italian this Italian that Portuguese this like it's everywhere and then I'm the Colombian in the room my husband's half Colombian (laughs) but he's redhead pale so like even him like he he has like a different uh, identity issue because like dad's Irish (laughs) and then his Colombian side but then for me it's like I was raised white and like I don't really know how to act Latina and like I know you mentioned that and like meeting other people so uh it's just this this tightrope that we have to walk on I feel and it really is a tightrope because I always feel like I'm on the verge of making a huge mistake when um when I'm with people you know and especially around my adoptive family and in the wake of Black Lives Matter Mm. you know it's been really difficult to talk to my parents about race because I think specifically with transracial adoptees a lot of adoptive parents have colorblindness yes you know it's like oh we don't see you as anything different than what we are Mm -hmm. and I know that that statement is rooted in love you know, because you're viewing your child as an extension of yourself. Yeah. And I I truly believe that people who make that statement make it with the best intentions. 
But to deny your child's color is to deny your child Mm -hmm. and to deny their experience. And I think it's really important for adoptive parents of transracial adoptees to get more comfortable with talking about race because how your child is seen in the world you know, by the people around them and the expectations that are placed on them because of their race Mm -hmm. is so integral to their identity. Definitely. And you mentioned before, it's just like growing up, we when we're near our adoptive parents, we kind of have their white privilege extended upon us in an umbrella because they can always step in and say, no, this is my kid. What's your problem? And then they see their pale faces and, you know, But then when we step out of the comfort of our homes with our families and the world is not seeing our parents, they're seeing our darker skin, they're seeing our hair, Mm -hmm. they're seeing everything. And then we're treated differently. And like so many times, like I was, you know, uh, talked down upon because people don't think I speak English. Uh, And then just these things by other people that I wasn't expecting. And then I'd ask my parents just, why are people treating me this way? And they'd just be like, oh, don't worry about them. Like, it's it's no big deal. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know. It's it's tough. <laughs> We're in this tough yeah. um, situation. Um, yeah. Same with my parents. You know, um, when I specifically, when I, I remember talking to my mom about the where are you from thing. Mm. And she told me, she's like, Lauren, that's just people making conversation. And I'm like, no, mom, you don't understand what people are asking me when they ask me that. Mm -hmm. Like they're asking a different question. It's different for you because if you say that you're from Long Island, no one's going to be like, well, are you Scandinavian? (laughs) Are you British? You know, like no one's going to say that to you. But if I say I'm Long Island, it's always, are you Japanese or Chinese? Because China and Japan are the only Asian countries that exist to white people. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I don't understand why people feel like they have the right to know everything about a person of color, you know, like they have a sense of entitlement to ask all these intrusive questions into our lives. And it's just like, they would never ask like a biological child, just like, well, why did your parents decide to conceive you in this month? Or like something super intrusive like that. But people ask us, well, what happened to your birth mother? Just like, are you going to search for that? Which is like, this is like super personal. And, you know, you're just meeting these random people or they're asking our parents. And it's just, I don't understand why people feel entitled to that information. I'm always surprised because inevitably when people meet me for the first time, whether it's through a friend or just like in life, in the wild, you know, somehow my adoption always comes up. Mm -hmm. I always manage a way to work it in, whether it's conscious or subconscious, I really couldn't say. But I'm always surprised by how people who find that out about me upon first meeting me will then ask me all these really deeply personal questions that I feel like you would never ask someone about another situation. Mm -hmm. You know, if you met an LGBTQ person, you wouldn't be like, hey, when did you first realize that you identified this way? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there are some people who would say that, but I think because the adoption narrative is marketed in such a positive manner people feel that non-adoptees especially feel that 
adoptees should be open to talking about that experience. And I think that's something that definitely needs to change because words have so much power. And one of the words that really is a trigger for me is the word real. Mm. And I always find that when I talk to non-adoptees, the first thing they ask me about is, well, have you gone to search for your real parents? Mm -hmm. And that's super offensive to me because like real as opposed to what? As opposed to fake? As opposed to imaginary? You know, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of non-adoptees understand the magnitude of that word and how it can be really triggering and affecting to adoptees. Yeah, it's definitely one of my least favorite terms out there. And like, it's so ironic because positive adoption language is so prevalent in the adoption mm-hmm. community and even just other people in the media and whatever. They just like to put a spin on it. It's just uh, adoption is so wonderful. Oh, the like adoptive parents, uh, pl- oh, the adopted child was placed. All these politically correct terminology. But then when it comes to it, when other people are talking to us, all these other terms come come up. I've heard the other day, like paper pregnancy and oh my yeah, God. Yeah. And so it's like what? super offensive terms that, that <laughs> people are all of a sudden okay to hear. And then it's like, where's the middle ground here where we have honest adoption language, which is also respectful to uh, most of the triad, but then without putting this positive slant on it, that can be, mm-hmm problematic for adoptees who have a more intense handle on like you know the nuances of everything for sure and I think like the way um adoption is marketed it was part of the reason that I felt so isolated Mm -hmm. because whenever I tried to research anything about adoption it was always pictures of white parents with smiling Asian children And I thought, well, that's not how I feel. Is there something wrong with me? Is there, why doesn't anyone look like they feel like I do? And, you know, I was growing up, I was really coming of age in the 90s as evidenced by any Spotify playlist that I've ever created. (laughs) Um, You know, um, so it was really before social media, before I was able to connect with the online adoptee community. And I feel like if I had had access to that community at a younger age, I definitely, I mean, my life would have been exponentially different, Mm -hmm. knowing that there were other people out there who were struggling, who were also having these conflicts of identity and who were really trying I don't even think I referred to myself as an adoptee until like two years ago because I didn't realize that's who I was. I didn't really know I was a transracial adoptee. I didn't know there was a name Mm -hmm. for it. And I think part of my struggle growing up was not being able to verbalize what I was feeling and what I was going through. And that definitely contributed to strain with the relationship between me and my parents. Mm -hmm. Have you felt like being adopted has impacted your other relationships in your life, like your romantic and friendships and stuff like that? For sure. I mean, there's that Mindy Kaling book, Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me? And I feel that way all the time. Uh especially if I'm in a group chat and everyone's quiet except me. I'm like, are they all hanging out? Mm. Am I the only one who didn't get invited? And I know in my mind that's not true, but 
So going back to like how my parents explained that um, I was adopted by being the solution to sort of their infertility issue, I really felt and really internalized that if they hadn't had struggle, if they hadn't struggled with their fertility and if they had been able to conceive naturally, I wouldn't be here. And I was plan B. And I really desperately wanted to prove to myself that I was worth wanting in a way. And I sought out that validation from other people, specifically romantic partners. And I think that desperation to have someone choose me, you know, to have, to be someone's first choice, to have someone want me really put me in a lot of dangerous emotional and physical situations. Uh And I really think it was a contributing factor to how I found myself in a domestic violence relationship. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I used to work in a DV shelter and uh, I have seen and heard a lot of things and I can imagine I can see how adoption can definitely contribute to like the cycle of abuse and the thought process of just being an adoptee and even um, just for me trying to figure out the difference between my parents not liking and respecting other people of color but I was different somehow and then I'd try to come up with a way to uh make that make sense in my head and then at the end of the day like I was very conflicted in like friendships and stuff and just trying to figure things out um so I I I can get where you're coming from and how that kind of happened for sure and um you know a lot of it is trust for me but a lot of it is also control. And I find that in my friendships and in my romantic relationships, when it gets to a point where I am feeling safe, I automatically have to distance myself because I'm like, okay, you know, me and Katie are having a really amazing time being friends and I see her all the time. So I need to not see her Mm. for a while. I need to be the one that decides that we don't hang out for a while because then it's not her leaving me. It's me leaving Mm. her or especially with men, you know, um, when it got too serious or when I felt like he, they were losing interest. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go now. I'm going to leave now because then they, they're not going to leave me and I'm not going to feel that. Mm -hmm. You know? So a lot of it for me is control. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, really <laughs> that fear of <laughs> abandonment and like, i recently found my birth mother and one of the the biggest issues i had before that was like i'd always wonder does she remember me was i even important enough to make an impact in her life and i think one of mm-hmm. one of the best things about finding her was hearing her kind of side of the story and why she put me up for adoption and just hearing that she didn't forget about me made a big change in like my my perspective on adoption in general and it's such a complicated thing uh because you know especially with international adoptions there's 
the poverty in other countries and it impacts Mm -hmm. uh like why so many middle class and upper middle class white adoptive families are able to adopt these children and why these mothers aren't able to to parent and and it's just adoption is so complicated so when we are expected to be positive about it all the time and Mm -hmm. um just reacted with negative things from other people when we are honest and share our Mm -hmm. stories um it it can be exhausting to to be almost attacked by strangers on the internet and i know you recently posted about a comment you got on your your book um if (laughs) can you just like uh refresh me about what what was said um i got a review on my book and basically the gist of it was that the main character whose name is Rowan is also a transracial adoptee. And part of the reason that this person didn't like the book was because she felt that Rowan's parents didn't get the credit that they deserve for adopting her. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, like so many conflicting feelings about that, but basically like adoptive parents I don't believe that you're entitled to a trophy for your choice Mm -hmm. to adopt. I really believe that because, um, you know, it's so difficult because adoption is a business. And I think that's being generously kind to call it a business because what it really is, is human trafficking, you know, or at least for for me personally, that's how I view it. Um, You pay money and you get a person. Like that's literally how it goes. And I think that adoption agencies market themselves based on the message or the goal of, Hey, we're creating families. But if that's really Mm -hmm. true, then where is our focus on family preservation for birth mothers? Why aren't we allocating resources to help, you know, mothers who are struggling with poverty or mothers who have been, you know, shunned by their families because they're unwed or, you know, where is the focus on that? You know, like Mm -hmm. that's my question to the adoption agency at large for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it's a business. Adoption agencies are making a lot of money by (laughs) arranging these matches and finding the perfect baby for uh, these adoptive families. And the reality is, is I don't think people really understand the statistics when you go into it. There's like millions of families looking Mm. for babies. Millions. There's a fraction of babies available for adoption. And so that creates a high demand in this adoption world. And people are always saying that, oh, adoptive parents, you gave a child Mm -hmm. in need a home. But the reality is there's so many different options for a newborn baby, especially a white baby. And then and then if you look at how much an adoption costs for a child of color, like the the cost decreases with the rate. If it's not a white baby, the cost is cheaper. And then Mm-hmm. And I recently, because uh, I'm writing a book on. Oh my god! I need a copy. I'm do- <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will let you know the details. But I'm really going into um, 
the history of transracial adoption and intercountry adoption. But recently, I was able to stumble upon a fact that I didn't I had no idea that the United States is not only a receiving country, we also participate in providing babies for other I countries. I can't believe you adopt. brought this up because I just found out the same thing. I saw it on a Facebook group and I didn't realize that we are one of the biggest providers of children. And I did not know mm-hmm. that. Other countries, they will adopt mm-hmm. black babies from America and go to other countries. And I was just my right. I was flabbergasted because you see the statistics of there's literally millions of couples all over the United States looking for babies. Why are we sending right. babies Why out are of we our outsourcing? country? Like- that doesn't make any sense. But then when you look at the reality of adoption is it's based on okay. white supremacy. And and these are some of the issues that adoptive parents really need mm-hmm. to look into when they're considering adoption. And because you hear it all the time, just like, oh, mm-hmm. I want to adopt a baby. Like, oh, yeah, it's in my heart to adopt <laughs> all these things. But people don't really do enough research mm. i feel before getting into adoption and then adopting transracially and then at the laws and stuff in the united states adoption agencies don't there isn't a standard amen. of uh, education amen <laughs> yeah there isn't a standard of where adoptive parents need to take classes and learn about transracial adoption and adopting a child of color. It's different. Some some adoption agencies is you take this 30-minute class. Some you have to read a few books and it's a couple of days. And other classes is like you take a quiz. I need to see a copy of that <laughs> so, quiz. <laughs> right? But it's just like, how do you expect the adoption to be this perfect entity that the media and adoptive parents and even birth mothers make adoption out to be to give adoptees a better life? But at the end of the day, there are all these issues that are just swept under the rug. And one of the things that really bothers me about adoption or the adoption like industry at large is the lack of transparency. Um, I recently found out that adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide than any other group. Um, Any other group of people, like, that is a high percentage, you know? And I feel like most adoptive parents don't know that because it's bad for business, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you tell a potential adoptive parent, like, hey, your kid is going to struggle and there's a high chance that they might have suicidal ideation, you know, your sales walking Mm -hmm. out the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just have to to correct that a little bit. It's attempt suicide. They're four times more likely to attempt. Yeah. I just, I just want to make that statistic clear. Yeah. And, and then going into that, the adoptees are actually at an increased risk of developing mental illness like ADHD, bipolar, borderline, reattachment uh, disorders and stuff like that. But like you said, adoption agencies don't like right. to bring that up. And my parents specifically um, were told not to tell me that I was adopted, that I would just know. And it's just like, man, how would I know that? Like, <laughs> like, in what world would I just know? Like, you know, and I like to think that well, there are more resources available to adoptive parents today, you know, with the online community being as strong as it is, 
I'd like to think that there's so mm -hmm. much more support out there to guide parents, but adoption agencies need to be doing more and our government needs to be doing more. Yes, definitely. And what year were you so adopted? I was adopted in 1986. So I think that was sort of like at okay. the height of export for uh, South Korea. I don't have any evidence to back that up. But <laughs> um, I know like in the 80s, like adoption was really booming from... So. Yeah, yeah, it, it was booming back then. I even I was adopted in 93. And well, my parents, I know you mentioned that your parents were told to just let you figure it out on your own. My parents never told me. What? Yeah, I wasn't told that I was adopted. And I actually found out when I was 19. Oh I uh, so they kind of took the uh, it was intense. <laughs> um, but my parents kind of took the colorblind thing to the extreme. And so that's why I've started this platform and why I'm really trying to educate other uh, prospective adoptive parents and current uh, adoptive parents. Because like you mentioned, there's a lot more resources available now. And if you're going to adopt a kid, it, there's no excuse to be uneducated Absolutely. these days. It's like you can do a quick Google source. You know, there's books like yours. There's podcasts. There's YouTube. There's, so there's all these other there's things. So where Exactly. And is is that part of the reason why you wrote your book, Inconvenient so Daughter? Part of the reason that I wrote Inconvenient Daughter was because growing up, the first time I saw someone that looked like me on screen was Mulan. And that was in 1998, mm. I believe. And I was 12 years old. So I had lived for 12 years without seeing anyone like me on screen. And she wasn't really a reflection of me because a, she's from a completely different time period. Um, she's also <laughs> from a completely different country. And I did not um, steal my dad's armor to go off and fight the Hun. Um, <laughs> the next time I saw someone was when Charlie's Angels came out. And then everyone oh, called okay. me Lucy Liu, despite the fact that I was not um, Chinese. Because I'm not really sure if Lucy Liu is Chinese or not. But I think that she's Chinese American. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I didn't really see anyone that reflected me or my experience on screen in books on TV, nothing. So what I was really trying to do with inconvenient daughter was show a different narrative because I feel like the narrative that has dominated the adoption industry has been the journey of the adoptive parents to adopt their child or has been of the adopted child looking for their birth parents and being in reunion. I feel like those are the main mm -hmm. narratives that we see. And I wanted to highlight a different story. And I wanted adoptees out there who are struggling, who don't know where they fit, who have issues with relationships and trust and control to know that they weren't alone. Mm-hmm. When I was reading your book, like one of the scenes that really stood out to me is I think you mentioned it before, but when uh, Rowan was asking her mother, like why she chose adoption and if she would have adopted uh, if she was able to have her kids and her mom kind of like brushed her off and you, know, <laughs> you wrote it. So, you know, but, <laughs> um, but um, Rowan, then she she kind of felt guilty about like asking these questions. And then uh, I could really relate to that because even though like my adoption story is a, a, a bit different from other people, um, even 
after finding out so late in life and having all these questions can, and kind of feeling more justified to mm-hmm. confront my parents, just seeing how it affected right. my mom, like it really got to me. I was just like, I'm right. hurting her by asking these questions. Like she's my mom. I know she didn't set out to hurt me, but like I also had all these questions that there were no answers to and my like you were adopted from a different country so you probably understand but all my adoption paperwork was in a different language (laughs) and so like they had some of the translations Mm -hmm. but um it was just like so shocking to have this reality and yet have nothing other than two sentences written by my birth mom at the time. So I knew absolutely nothing other than I was given up at a few months old and then they brought me here and then my parents didn't really want to talk about it. And so seeing a character in print, just have try to have these conversations and then see her feel so guilty and then awkward and then just struggling with this and the relationship with her mom and, you can tell that mm-hmm. she loves her mom but it's just so complicated and having that in print for me to see as an adult like i can imagine how for like teenagers are going to be impacted by your book and it's so important i feel for adoptive parents listening to this to realize that books written by adoptees are essential for mm-hmm. adoptees to read because we're adoptees are the best reflection of what the experience is about because we have lived in. And it's so important to listen to adoptive voices, especially when those voices are saying things that make you feel uncomfortable that make you feel sad, Mm -hmm. that make you feel maybe even a little guilty. You know, I think it's important for adoptive parents to create a safe space and creating a safe space as an adoptive parent is probably a struggle. You know, because you have Mm -hmm. sunk time and emotion and money and so much effort, you know, to get to this point in your journey. But if you're really looking to go the distance, you have to do things that are going to make you uncomfortable and going to make you question Mm -hmm. yourselves and your motives. And I think that's healthy, Mm -hmm. you know, and I know that my parents did their best trying to create a safe space, but at the end of the day, my mom is such an expressive person. She cannot control her face. So when I asked her those questions and saw the pain working through her, you know, I sort of knew that I had caused that pain and the questions that I had caused that pain. Mm. And I didn't want to do that to someone I cared so much about, you know? So I think it's really Mm -hmm. important that adoptive parents always strive to create a safe space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's essential for other adoptive parents to realize that adoptees will try to protect our parents from any pain, any uncomfortableness, because like, like you said before, like, we're constantly told how lucky we are. And, and we don't want to ruin that and put any cracks into this family. We've already lost one. And exactly, exactly. And struggling to, to, to be true to ourselves while also trying to figure out all the aspects of who we are is just like this complicated right. beast <laughs> of an undertaking. Right. For us and to take. speaking of complicated, so, so I just want to point something out about Lucy Liu. I just did a quick Google search and mm-hmm. I found that she is actually Taiwanese American. She is not Chinese American. Mm. However, growing up without racial mirrors. 
and genetic mirrors, my concept of what it means to be an Asian person has largely been informed by the predominantly white upbringing that I had. And I just knocked mm-hmm. people for, I specifically knocked white people for thinking that Japan and China were the only two Asian countries. And then I myself stated that Lucy Liu was a Chinese American actress, which she is not. So again, I'm, mm-hmm. first of all, I apologize because that's totally wrong and racist of me. And I'm so sorry. Um the other thing is I'm still learning how to be an Asian American who has benefited from white privilege and has lived her life through the lens of a white person. So, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a constant learning process. It's something that we're always figuring out. And I really believe that the adoptee journey is lifelong and that it's unique to every Mm -hmm. single adoptee. Yeah. Yeah. We all have, different experiences and which is one of the reasons why I don't like when adoptive parents say well my kid doesn't have any issues or like a a random cousin will be like well my cousin's adopted and they're happy like why are you saying all these things so I think the nature of not my adoptee needs to come to an end Um, And I will say this, I'm not going to make this blanket statement for everyone, because obviously, like I just said, every adoptee experience is unique. But if you Mm -hmm. think that your child is fine, if you think that your child has no issues being adopted, maybe that's true. But maybe they are struggling so much that they are literally working 24-7 to promote the image that they are okay because they need you to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it kind of goes back to, I think adoptive parents should put themselves in their own shoes when they were teenagers. Like, were you telling your parent everything? <laughs> like, did did you tell them when you were struggling uh, about school mm-hmm. or a boy or whatever? It's like, it's the same kind of concept with adoptees. Like, as we grow and get older, like the way I viewed my adoption when I first found out versus now is completely right. different. And like, I know that's this very similar mm-hmm. for other adoptees. And like one of the the questions that I get a lot is just like, how do I make sure that my, uh, my child doesn't experience what you went through or like, (laughs) yeah, like there's no formula to having a perfect adoption, a perfect family, just like with a biological kid. And it's just like, anything can pop up. And I don't know if you remember, but like Huxley's story, um, if people haven't heard the story, Huxley was adopted. Uh, I think he was two by Micah, by Micah Stafer. Yeah. She was, uh, an influencer on YouTube. She put a bunch of YouTube videos and she adopted him, I believe from China. And, uh, Mm -hmm. she was told that he would have certain delays and was going to have some disabilities, but then she, she adopted him for, I think she had him about two years and, and then things kind of went downhill she said she tried to do everything and then it wasn't a right fit for her family anymore and the thing that was so shocking for me especially for someone with disabilities um is that an adoptive parent saying oh well i didn't expect it to be this bad and the issue is just 
a biological child can potentially have a medical issue, become disabled at any point in time. So when you adopt a kid and then say, well, I don't, I didn't expect it to be this hard. Well, would it be different Mm -hmm. if that was your biological child? Because I think for most people, it would. Right. And that's hard for a lot of people to, to accept. Right. There's so much to unpack with like the Micah Stouffer situation. So first of all, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that she profited financially from adopting Huxley is problematic. Number one, number two, I feel like it is a hundred percent on Micah Stouffer and her family for not doing the proper research and for not spending time with adopted parents who have adoptees or even parents who haven't adopted who have children with disabilities and to really hear about what that experience is like to really interact with those children and ask yourself truly is this something that Mm -hmm. I want to do and is this something that I can do so that's 100% on the Stouffer's but is also 100% on the adoption agency for not making that research a requirement because the at the end of the day the person who got hurt the most was Huxley. Um, And I pray that he is with a family who is fully prepared and who really wants to create the best life they can for him. Um, I do not, it's complicated for me because I'm a big subscriber of, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with me. So I feel that Micah Stover, even though she is a hundred percent wrong, I think that her decision to relinquish Huxley is right because if you feel for a second that you are not the right parent for this kid and that you don't want to be Huxley's parent, then yes, you did the right thing because now he can be with someone who is prepared to take on that role and who is prepared to give him the support that he needs and who wants to do that. So it's really complicated for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But rehoming, as they call it, rehoming, which is a term I also hate and is super triggering Mm -hmm. for me, um, is something that happens all the time and that doesn't get talked about enough. And I think it raises the larger question for adoptive parents is why are you looking to adopt? And Mm -hmm. why are you checking off certain boxes? Because I think a lot of adoptive Mm -hmm. parents, when they adopt, they're looking for a clean slate. They don't want a child who has a lot of memories. They don't want a child who Mm -hmm. has any sort of imperfections. They want a fresh start, you know. And any adoptee that you adopt, whether they're three years old or three days old, is not Mm going to be a fresh start. Yeah, the trauma is intrinsic. Um, and it's just like this child has been carried mm-hmm. by a woman for nine months and the sights, the sounds, the emotions mm-hmm. that that woman felt impact a baby psychologically. There have been many studies mm-hmm. on that. So then even if you're adopting a mm-hmm. baby a day old, like you said, like that's trauma for a baby to be separated from that person that they have been around for nine months. And 
I I know most people have heard like the studies where like an right. infant can smell the blanket of their mother that their mother was holding and recognize it. Oh my god, so many feels, so many feels. Yeah, so it's just like even though we were both babies when we were adopted, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that there's not trauma from being separated from this person who carried us. Right, and I. Just because you can't remember doesn't mean that you exactly, forget. and it's there. It's imprinted in our brain, and it's something that a lot of adoptees, like you said, we need to to deal with, and we need to be supportive by our adopted mm-hmm. parents when we are trying to process all these complicated emotions. And adoption is rooted in loss. At least it is for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the loss of my birth culture, the loss of my homeland, the loss of my biological family, you know, that's how my story started. Mm -hmm. It doesn't start with my, me coming off the plane and, you know, going into the arms of my parents. It doesn't start there. Yeah. You know, and we need time and we need space to grieve that loss. And, you know, wanting to know about where you come from, and loving where you are now are not mutually exclusive things. You can still love the life you have, but want to know about the life you could have had. Exactly. And that has to be okay. It has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like that reminds me of why people have issues with adoptees trying to understand our birth roots, but mm. then you have people doing Ancestry.com and all these genetic tests and they're trying to find out where their great-great-grandfather came from and when they immigrated to the United States or wherever it is. And it's seen as acceptable by Mm. most people for people to dig in and do research about their ancestors. But then Mm. when adoptees want to search for birth family or just find out more information about our roots and medical history, whatever, we're all of a sudden put in the spotlight and seen as ungrateful and disrespectful to our adoptive parents for even daring to admit that we have another family out there and wanting to know information about them. Right. Absolutely. And going with the whole ungrateful thing, I think something that adoptive parents really need to be cognizant of when they're having these conversations with their adoptees is tone policing. Mm. And, you know, saying, why are you so angry? Why are you attacking me? You know, you sound so ungrateful. These are ways that you're not only discounting your adoptee's feelings, but you're also relinquishing any responsibility that you may have. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. Mm -hmm. You know, we do, we as adoptees do have a right to be angry. Mm -hmm. Um, We do, we are entitled to our outrage. We're entitled to our sadness. We're entitled to our confusion. Yeah. Because, um, and I think that non-adoptees have a really difficult time understanding how triggering it can be to be an adoptee on a day-to-day basis. So um, think about, especially like when you go to the doctor or dentist or fill out an, a job application, when they have medical history and mm-hmm. you have to check, I don't know. And then when you get to the form, first of all, there's no adopted box on the form. Yeah. It's 2020, but there's, there's no, box, <laughs> you know, and then you have to talk to a nurse 
who says any family history of heart disease, diabetes, and you say I'm adopted, but they continue down the list. There was mm-hmm. like cancer, cancer, high blood pressure. It's like, no lady, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you have the doctor that comes in and is like, so I see here you didn't fill out the family medical history part. And then you got to re-explain like, hey, it's not that I didn't fill it out. It's just I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. You know, so even going to the doctor's office where you know that you're going to be grilled you know, is really traumatic. And Mm -hmm. then every, you know, we've been talking about sort of how the adoption narrative is marketed, but I once had a nurse tell me that she always wanted to adopt an Asian baby because she wanted to dress the baby up like Boo from Monsters, Inc. Oh my gosh. That was literally the reason. (laughs) Well, that's why you put that in the book. I remember that line. And I was just like, no, she didn't. But then the other part of me is like, yeah, yeah, she did. I believe it. I believe it. And then I was like, that's a great reason. I mean, (laughs) oh my gosh. But Uh, adoptees relive their trauma when they have interactions like that. And it's important for non-adoptees to understand that anything can be triggering. mm -hmm. Simply going to a baby shower can be triggering. Mm. Like, hey, I wonder if the baby's going to have, you know, Anna's nose or, you know, Brian's laugh. Mm -hmm. You know, not seeing yourself genetically or racially mirrored in the people around you has lasting effects on your life. It's and exhausting. on your sense of identity. Yeah. And it is emotionally laborious to talk about these issues. And that's another thing to be cognizant of as an adoptive parent or as a non-adoptee in general, that you're putting adoptees through emotional labor when you ask them deeply personal questions that you may or may not view as emotional or personal. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like baby showers and those things, like my family recently, a lot of people have been having babies. So oh, congratulations. All, thank you. So like part of me is like super happy for all my cousins. But then the other part of me, as I hear like my aunts and even my mom is just like, oh, everybody's having girls in the family except for you. Like you're the only one with the boys. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm the only one with the boys, but technically they're not even related by blood, right. you know? So it's right. like it's just super awkward for me and they don't even notice. So Mm -hmm. it's just like the lack of awareness for what they're saying and how it impacts me. Cause at the end of the day, it's just like, yeah, we're family, but it's different. And like my sons aren't going to see themselves reflected in their cousins and like the constant reminders, like you're different. You're the one with the boys. Everybody Mm -hmm. else in their family had girls. It's just like, yeah, because girls <laughs> run in your family. That's why. And I'm different because I'm adopted. Like, thanks for rubbing that in. <laughs> and it's little microaggressions like that. You know, my brother just had a baby. Um, he's He was born on April 30th, and he is the cutest oh. little nugget I've Congratulations. ever Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going home to meet him in August, and I'm really excited. But my mom told me that the baby is stingy with his smiles. So Mm -hmm. when I first saw the baby on FaceTime, he smiled at me. And I realized it's because I look like my brother. Because he recognizes that we have a connection. Uh And, you know, I was telling someone the other day about how shortly before I moved, my parents and I went to dinner and we told the hostess party of three and she took my parents to the table. And when I followed them, she was like, oh, I'll be right with you. Because she didn't 
see that we belong together. Like she mm. thought they were waiting on someone else. And then I was a separate party. Mm-hmm. And until this baby came along, I never had anyone in my life that made me feel like I belonged to them mm-hmm. or made me feel like there was an undeniable connection. And it wasn't until I looked at that baby that I finally had that. Yeah. You know, and it made me emotional. And, you know, I don't think that non-adoptees understand the power of that. And my grandmother is super taken with the baby. She's in love. And she made a comment like, oh, he has the sharky chin. <laughs> but he doesn't. Yeah. And I get what she means when she says that. And it comes mm-hmm. from a place of love and, you know, viewing us as not different, but we are different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just constantly that tightrope that we were talking about, that fine line that mm-hmm. we walk as adoptees. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. Because, like, with my sons, it's kind of uh, the opposite. My mom is just so surprised that my kids look like me. <laughs> so surprised that they look like my husband. She's like, he looks exactly like your husband. Oh, he has, <laughs> like, your exact mouth. He's like a mini you. And I'm like. Yeah, I kind of made him. <laughs> he came from my body. Kind of originated here. Yeah, and it's just like that shock that she has because she never had that. And it's yeah. just like we had some basic similarities. Like we we're both short. We both had dark black hair and brown eyes. But other than that, like it, that was it for her. Like right. she never got right. to share that with her ch- children, like uh, I do with my kids. And it's kind of just interesting. We're we're trying to learn as we go with my kids and kind of, I guess, like readjusting to our relationship and learning as we go along. And so like, I hope adoptive parents realize that even if like, it's okay to make mistakes, but if you're Mm -hmm. open to learning, uh, like it can make a big difference in your adoptee's life. And I think that's the main thing with, you know, tone policing is that it automatically tells me that you're not opening to listening Mm -hmm. and you're not open to learning. And those are the two pillars that adoption needs to be built on listening and learning, Mm -hmm. you know, and listening doesn't mean responding. Yes. Listening can mean holding space for, it can mean sitting with someone. It doesn't mean you say something, I say something. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is very important. And which is why I just want to plug in one more time before we sign off that if you're an adoptive parent or even an adoptee or just a random person listening, please check out her book, Inconvenient Daughter. (laughs) Can you tell people where they can find it? Yes, you can find it on IndieBound or at your local indie bookstore. And you can always connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at at the LJ Sharp. And I will link everything in the show notes and on my website. So if you want to buy a copy, which you should, um, <laughs> definitely check it out. And I just want to thank you again for coming on. It was an awesome conversation and I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I really hope that we can do this again sometime because I had so much fun talking with you today. And thank you for having me here. Me too. Thank you. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.